God ordained three institutions in Israel, the Levitical priesthood, the prophets, and the kings. There is a day coming, hallelujah, when a king will come to rule in Israel. Not just Israel, he will rule the world in righteousness. And that king, the Bible says, has come and will come. He came through the line of Judah, the largest tribe of Israel. We know him as the Lord Jesus Christ, who will reign from a literal temporal temple in Jerusalem for 1,000 years. And then following the end of that 1,000 years, will establish an eternal kingdom. Zechariah 9.10 says, He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That describes a universal dominion. You've probably heard the, the chant of many Palestinians and others who hate Israel. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. My reply is, from the river to the sea, to the ends of the earth, the kingdom of Jesus will be. And the world hates that idea. They hate many other things that God does, and they hate the way that God does them. I like what J. Vernon McGee had to say about that. He said, this is God's universe, and God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. That puts it pretty succinctly, right? It is God's universe. And the King of Kings will one day rule the earth portion of this universe in the way he chooses to do so by Jesus Christ. And at that time, the Jewish nation will acknowledge him as prophet, priest, and King Messiah. Psalm 22, verse 27 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor, the ruler among the nations. Well, Israel's priesthood began with the first king that they had selected, which we read about in 1 Samuel 8. That was the establishment of the monarchy, ruled by a king. Theocracy is ruled by God, and they did not want that. A monarch is the head of a nation, and a monarchy in ancient times was the rule of a king. In the history of Israel, when we speak of Israel, if you know your history of Israel, we're talking about the northern tribes of Israel with the capital in Samaria. The southern tribes, there were only two. There were ten in the north, two in the south. The, 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 the southern tribes were in Judah, and their capital was Jerusalem. We'll get more into that as we go along with the study. But in the history of both Israel and Judah, there, there were 39 kings, excluding Saul, David, and Solomon. Eight were good kings, and 31 were bad. That's 20.5% of the good kings. The few good kings were all located, as I said, in the southern kingdom of Judah. The 20 kings of the northern kingdom, the 20 kings, were all bad, 100%. Eight kings of Judah were said to have done that which was right in the sight of the Lord. 
as opposed to all of the kings in the north who did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Samuel, who was a prophet in Israel, he was also a judge in Israel. He was the last judge in Israel, and his his judgeship, if you want to call it, ended about 1050 BC. That puts you in the life of, of Samuel. I'm not sure the exact date. But but his his this was the period of time that Israel would transition from the period of the judges, and you're familiar with that. Everyone was doing evil in their their doing what was right in their own eyes. And they would transition out of that period of judges into the monarchy or ruled by a king. Samuel, we know, was a very godly man, very much a man of prayer. He was a strong believer in the Lord, but unfortunately, his sons were not. The people raised two concerns to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, 5. Chapter 8, verse 5. Number one, they told him he was too old. And I I don't take that to mean they didn't think he could do the job, but that he was old and there was not going to be a successor. They didn't see a successor in line. And that was because there's other objection. His sons were rebellious. So think about that. The sons of the godly prophet Samuel were rebellious. You can teach your children all about God, but that does not always translate into a true faith or into godly living. So the pragmatic reason for Israel wanting a king was the rule of judges had failed, and there was a lack of adequate successors as they they sought. Robert Bergen said this, four different judges were mentioned as having sons who held positions of leadership following their father's death. In three of the cases, Gideon's, Eli's, and Samuel's, the sons turned out to be unworthy successors. And in the one positive case, a judge named Jer, it didn't go beyond one generation. I mean, that tells you something. It's hard to translate, transmit truth from one generation to another. 1 Samuel 8, 1, which we read earlier, now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the first burden was Joel, the name of the second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice, the exact opposite of what a righteous judge should do. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us. So here they have this demand for a king. But the problem is they wanted a king like the Canaanite nations had. And the key to understanding this is in Deuteronomy chapter 17. I would like you to turn there to Deuteronomy 17 and verse 14. Verse 14, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. So their actions, 1 Samuel 8, did not take God by surprise at all. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses 
One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But this king, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. You can see all the multiplication there. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren. You need a king that has humility that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So quickly, this describes what God wanted them to look for in a king. Number one, he must not trust in his military strength. He must not multiply horses. And he must not lead the people back to Egypt to gain those horses. Psalm 20, verse 76 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And this seems odd to us, but bear this in mind. Egypt was the primary supplier of war horses in the ancient world. And God knew that Israel would be tempted to enter into alliances with Egypt to acquire horses for their own army. Israel wanted security apart from God, or we could say in addition to God. They didn't think he was sufficient to protect them. And what they had forgotten was that just 20 years ago, from the time of this statement at Mitzpah, when they dedicated themselves to the Lord, he routed their greatest enemy, the Philistines. God was all that they needed. They didn't need help from Egypt or anyone else. So go back to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Now, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mitzvah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. They were their mortal enemies. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, intercessory prayer, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder. What, what did that sound like? What kind of a thunderstorm was that? 
The Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. This is our God. He doesn't need help from anyone else. William Cowper, who suffered much in this in his life, he wrote, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. What, what a beautiful thought that is. He is the Lord of the storm. He is the God of the storm. And Psalm 29, 3 says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. So he thundered over the Philistines and they were routed. That's our God. Amen. But the sacrificial lamb that, that Samuel offered up was accompanied by intercessory prayer. It says he cried out to the Lord. That's talking about the intensity of his prayer. From the deepest part of his being, he cried out to the Lord. And as the, sm the, as the smoke from that sacrifice rose toward heaven, so the prayers of Samuel reached the Lord. And it's that way with our prayers, brothers and sisters. That's why I encourage you to come out to pray. Revelation 5.8 says, Now when he, Jesus, had taken the scroll, he was the only one worthy to open it, to unleash the judgments that were going to come upon the earth. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Figuratively speaking, our prayers reach God. That's an encouragement to come to pray. There's power in prayer. There's power in corporate prayer. It's all through the Bible. God's people pray and God hears their prayers. Second thing he Moses told him in Deuteronomy was that a king of Israel must not enter into foreign alliances by marrying many wives. Thirdly, he must not multiply silver or gold. He must not covet silver or gold. And then lastly, the great, the great admonition there was that he must fear God with a humble heart and keep all of his commandments. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. A king who kept all of this would not be a king like the Canaanite nations had. By incidentally, Solomon, Solomon the wise, broke all of those commandments. Every one of them. Every one of those four commandments. He multiplied his horses. He multiplied his wives. He multiplied his silver and gold. And he did not walk in the ways of the Lord. First Kings 11.5 says, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Not that David was perfect, because we know of his, his great sins, but he was a man after God's own heart. He had a repentant heart. 
So had the people waited on God, they could have avoided the tragedy that Samuel or that Saul became. God said way back in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 6, as part of the Abrahamic covenant, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. So this idea of having a king was was not new, was not foreign to the Lord. It just had to be the king of God's choosing and not the people's choosing. But Israel had a had a, the wrong motive in demanding a king. They wanted to be like the other nations. They had a problem waiting upon God. Isn't that a problem for all of us sometimes? Waiting upon God. So we 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 make moves to get things done because we think it's going to work out better for us that way. Oftentimes I found that had I waited, God had a better way. First Samuel 8, 5, they said, Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And verse 6 says, But the, the thing that they said displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So here's my question. How should we react when people do things to us that we are not pleased with? How should we react? How should we react when people reject us? Because that's what the Israelites did. It says, so Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord answered his prayer. And the answer to the prayer was not like we would think. God said, let them have their own way. I call that Burger King theology. Let them have it their way. And sometimes that's the worst thing that could ever happen, that you get your own way. And the Lord said to Samuel in verse 7 of chapter 8, 1 Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are do doing to you also. So they had a long track of disobedience, this nation. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will rule over them. So here's the warning in a nutshell. The freedom that they were seeking and the security that they were seeking, they would not have and they would lose. They wouldn't have the freedom and they wouldn't have the security. And here's what I found often to be true. The things that we seem to think that we cannot live our life without, I must have this, I must have that become the shackles that keep us in bondage. The things that you think you cannot live without are the shackles that will keep you in bondage. So be content, as the scripture says, with such things as you have. And it seems like to me, the more that we accumulate, the more difficult life becomes. And, and it really isn't a freedom. We get all of these things and like so many rich people who have everything, what are they going to do with them? And how much of it are they going to, to leave behind? All of it. They're going to take none of it with them. 
So look at the final result is in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19, after the warning in 10, 10 verses 10 through 18 of the kind of a king that they would have. He would make life miserable for them. He would be overbearing. Overbearing, he would be a totalitarian. He'd raise their taxes. Just a bad king. It says in verse 19, even after that warning, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, no, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go up before us and fight our battles. That's what kings do. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice. And make them a king. And Saul was chosen to be the first king of Israel by the people. And his setting apart to be king, 1 Samuel 10 1, Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, It is not because the Lord has anointed you, is it not that because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? So he anointed him, which is Symbolic of the setting apart uh, to, a, to, a, to, a, to a sacred office or a sacred service. So you have the setting apart of Saul, and then you have the rebuke of Samuel. Samuel called all the people together at Mitzpah and said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up out of up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. Verse 19. But you have today rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversities and all your tribulations and you have said to him, no, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Those words just struck me. You have today rejected your God. I think that should have sent shivers down their spines. But they were already determined to have it their own way. How many people have you, you shared the gospel with? How many people have you warned and they, they have rejected the message? And they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the Lord. They're rejecting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem was this king was, would not be a man after God's own heart. They selected a king after their own heart. What they wanted, what they desired. He rose to kingship on the voice of the people. Now think about this. He looked right for the role of a king. He was tall and he was handsome. He utterly failed, however, to submit to God's standards of what a king should do and what a king should be. So, so Saul was admirable on the outside. But he was hollow, figuratively speaking, on the inside. He was an empty suit. That's Saul. In contrast, there was another Saul. You know which one? Saul of Tarsus. 
the Apostle Paul. Here was a man who was apparently small, not the kind of a man who would stand out in a crowd for his good looks, didn't, didn't look the part of someone who should be vested with authority and power. But 2 Corinthians 10.10 says, His letters, they say, are weighty and powerful because they are the words of God. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. He can't speak well. He doesn't look good. He looks like a weakling. That was the judgment of the people. Yet despite this unimpressive physical appearance, he is now acknowledged to be one of the greatest men who ever walked this earth. Men look on the outward what? Appearances. But God what? God judges the heart. God looks at the heart. You know, we can, we can hide a lot from God, but he knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. Even from afar off, the Bible says. He knows exactly what we are made of. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our strength. Then you have the selection of Saul in verses 19 through 24. I'll just jump down at verse 24. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king! Long live the king! And along with the selection, you have the rejection. Verse 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. He would not have a long rulership. Well, he would in, in, in one sense, but it was a tragic rulership. Saul reigned for 40 years in Israel. He fell on his own sword in Gilboa. He died by suicide. And then the Philistines desecrated his body. 1 Samuel 31, verse 8. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that's of Israel, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. And it says in verse 10, Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtaroths, and they fastened his body. They nailed his body to the wall of Beth-Shion. Beth-Shion is the way they pronounced it. This is a city, I think it's 17 miles from the Sea of Galilee, going south. It was a city inhabited by the Israelites at that time. It was destroyed completely. It was rediscovered, rebuilt by the Romans in 63 BC, and they named it Sith, Sithopolis. And it was part of the 10 cities of the Decalogue, of, of the, what was the word, not Decalogue, Decapolis. Nine of them were, were in the east of the Jordan, and this was the only one to the west, but it was the major city. At that time, Jesus would have gone to the city. Nazareth wasn't that far away. It's very possible that Jesus and his father Joseph worked on building the city back up. And then it was destroyed. And I think we have a picture here of the ruins. It, it's If you go to Israel, did you guys go there in Israel? This is like an amazing place. And they just keep on, you know, 
earthing the remains of this city, Beth Shean, in Israel. So how do we conclude with this? Saul's life, I think, is a, a sad story about what could have been. He forfeited a lot. He forfeited the blessings of God because he chose disobedience over obedience. I'm not going to go and list all of his sins. He committed many of them. But he and his son suffered the terrible consequences of his choices. We know this. He was a man of jealousy. He was subject to fits of rage. And the irony is that after he took his own life by falling on a sword, the Philistines took his body and they nailed it to this wall at Beth Sheehan. And in Hebrew, that name Beth Sheehan means house of rest. That's, that's really ironical because he knew no rest. He was a tormented man, really, pursuing Pursuing David through the wilderness, consulting with witches. Build your house on what? The Lord Jesus Christ. Build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can give you rest. He is the house of rest. He is the place of rest. I spent this whole message on, on one king of Israel because he set the pattern of many other kings of Israel. And kings of Judah who were not kings after God's own heart, like David. They did not walk in the way of the Lord. But it says of all of those evil kings that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did that which was not right in the sight of the Lord. So the admonition then, and the only thing that we should really take from this, or the main thing, is let us all walk in the way of the Lord. Sounds easy, right? Trust and obey. We sing that to the children. We teach that to the children. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be blessed in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's the path of those seeking to please God and to bring him glory. Trusting and obeying. Albert Barnes in his commentary, and I leave you with this thought. He says, there is nothing more foolish than an act of wickedness. There is no wisdom equal to that of obeying God. That makes it pretty simple, doesn't it? There's nothing more foolish than an act of wickedness, deliberate sin. There is no wisdom that you could ever gain that is equal to obeying God. Because when, if you have a heart to obey God, God will unfold many things to you besides his blessings. He will give to you an understanding of his word. And you, your spirit will be very sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So that when you begin to go astray, what does God do? He convicts you. He convicts you so that you can repent of that, confess it, return back to him, and be blessed. That's his desire. Because when you sin and I sin, the fellowship that we have with the Lord is, is broken. We can never break our relationship with the Lord. Or we have eternal security in Christ. But the fellowship can be broken. And you know it and I know it. Things aren't right until we do what's right. Right? 
we go back, tell the Lord how we have failed. And he is, the Bible says, faithful and just to continue to forgive us of all of our sin. Amen. That's, that's sweet. That's precious. So who are you following this morning? Are you following the voice of the people that are out there? Are you following the voice of your friends, your peers, your schoolmates? Whose voice are you following? Who are you listening to? Hopefully you're going to listen to the voice of the Lord, that he could rule over you, that he can have control over your life willingly, and that you will be blessed. Father, thank you for this time, for your many good things that you give to us, the simplicity of your word. Not hard to understand what I've spoken here this morning, Lord. What's hard is doing it. God help us. We fail many times. We need the wisdom of your word. We need the strength of your grace, the power of your presence in our life through the Holy Spirit of God. So teach us, Lord, continue to teach us the way that we should go and help us, Lord, to follow that with our whole heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.